Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and today with me is a special guest, my mother, Melody. Hi. Hi. Uh, today we're going to do an uh, impromptu conversation because we, this morning, started talking about um, some caregiving issues for a friend of ours, and it sparked a bigger conversation, and both of us thought it would be a pretty good idea to just really dive into what it's like to be a caregiver of a loved one, and just how difficult that is. Yes. <laughs> so, um, as I said before... Uh, maybe I didn't in this particular episode, but I am a hospice social worker, and part of my job is to help our families um, secure or figure out their social network, um, their circle of support, and figure out if they need additional caregiving to what they already have. So, unfortunately, for a lot of people, it just ends up being one person that ends up carrying the load. And that could be for a lot of reasons. Um, that could be because the individual that is the patient has pushed people out of their lives. It could be because they don't have any other family. Maybe they're all deceased. It could be because other family members are not willing to contribute. And there's plenty of factors that would um, cause people to have little or no caregiving. And as much as we would love to believe the movies, we don't just live our lives fine and then one day, you know, say, oh, thank you for helping me and die, you know, <laughs> go quietly into this, uh, this great night. So what are your uh, initial thoughts on if I just say, what do you think about caregiving? Well, I think it's very important. Uh, I became a caregiver not by choice. Um, and very early. Very young. Uh, I was 34, of course. We're talking about your father. Mm-hmm. He uh, was 34 also and had brain cancer. And Thank he, you, Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> he was an only child, and I was his only caregiver. And it was shocking. It was unbelievably scary. And let's set the stage for the rest of that scenario. You had a, a child. You had me at that point, And I was eight, seven. 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 Um, so it's not like I could have helped. Right. You were seven. And I was 34. Your dad was 34. And his mother was elderly. Not able to. Not able to help. No. She had her own health issues. Right. So there I was with a child to raise and a husband to take care of. Um, for a while, he was ambulatory. He could take care of himself. He could drive. Um, this went on for, I took care of him for two years. Plus, I was working at the same time. Mm -hmm. And he was in and out of the hospital with surgery. Yes, he had several surgeries, mm -hmm. brain surgeries, which are quite painful. Uh, we found out very quickly uh, that your friends... My, not my dad's friends, friend, your dad's friends, people's friends. <laughs> yeah. uh, they scatter like rats from a ship, mm -hmm. sinking ship, because it approaches their own mortality 
And, mm-hmm. and at that age, I mean, you don't think of your own mortality. You're immortal. Nothing's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. And that's where the shock for me came in. Is that you had so many good friends and then they weren't, where were they when you needed them the most? Yes, but the ones that did show up sucked the blood from you. And that's, I was going to bring that up actually whenever you were, I didn't want to interrupt your point there, but um, I was just talking to one of our spouses of a, a patient that passed and their take was the same, that they are exhausted from supporting the supporters. Yes. That every time they come over, they feel like they're not getting support, but they have to be supportive of the other person. So maybe you can talk about that. Uh, too many of our friends would come over when your dad finally started getting worse, and I had to quit my job and be home all the time. I was petrified. Now, we had hospice at that point because he was classified terminal mm-hmm. from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Uh, they gave him six months uh, he was lasted two years, but we had hospice, which they were a godsend, trust me. Um, but they made sure we had all the equipment we needed, all the meds we needed, and all the support we needed. Uh, but I was the only one there. I mean, they weren't there all the time. I understood that. And they had counselors that would come in mm-hmm. and talk to me. And that's important for me as a hospice social worker to convey to our families And it's important to hear from someone that's been the caregiver and in the caregiver role to explain to people that hospice is a wonderful support and can make a huge difference in your end-of-life care and the support of your family members. But we're not there 24 hours a day. It is not caregiving service. No, and I never expected that. That was That's Mm -hmm. the one thing I liked about them. When they came, everything was explained. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to be there 24 hours a day. You are the caregiver unless you pay somebody to come in. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, I could call and talk to them if I needed to. Uh, I had a counselor that would come out and check on us, and he was just wonderful. And um, I could be angry and mm-hmm. know that it was okay. But getting back, getting off track, getting back to friends. Yeah, sucking you dry (laughs) it's uh it was one thing to have to raise you take care of your father and work at the same time it was another thing trying to support our friends the ones that stayed around anyway uh i finally had to tell them not to come around because they would look at me and say oh my god you're so strong Mm. how are you so strong how do you do it well I didn't know how I did it. I just did it. That's just the way it is. I had nobody to call. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I did, but nobody would come. Um, I had friends that they didn't know how to come. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was better for me just to say, just please, I have enough to deal with. I can't support you too. Right. I can't do it. I couldn't do it physically. I couldn't do it emotionally. I was sucked dry. Mm-hmm. And finally, I this one specific gal, I just said, please, you have to stop. I can't do this anymore. I don't have the strength for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I was doing enough on my own. I couldn't help her mentally. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help her understand what I did or why I did it. I, you know, I couldn't explain to her 
the inner strength I had because she was sucking it out of me. <laughs> I'm sorry. But unintentional, but yeah. Unintentional, yeah. I mean, she had all great intentions, but I finally had to say, just don't come around anymore. I cannot support you. What do you think would have been helpful in that moment? If a friend would have come over, what could they have offered that would have been helpful? Oh, man, that was so long ago. It's so hard to, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I think if they brought food or if they offered to sit with him like the volunteers for hospice did you're mentioning if they offered to give you a respite and we'll get into that in a second about why that was difficult but do you think it would have been helpful if they would have offered that yes if yeah if she would have offered that mm -hmm. but all i got was how do you do it mm -hmm. how how do you how are you so strong how can you take care of him raise your daughter and do this and do it i don't know you just did it because you had I to just did it because i had to do it 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 i didn't have a choice yeah. You know, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't have let her sit with my husband. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were specific reasons for that and not <laughs> anything weird or, you know, it's just that my own paranoia about his illness, mm -hmm. you know. And I, you were saying earlier when we were talking that even when the volunteers from hospice would come to sit with him, it's almost impossible to pull yourself away even though you know you need the break. I couldn't do it. I was, well, I I did fine the first, oh, year and a half, I guess. How, I guess, I, I kind of don't remember all of it, of course. I was a lot younger, but. <laughs> I blocked most of it out, so <laughs> there you go. But I know he was diagnosed and it was two years before he died. But how long was it? In the very end, I know like the last week or so he was kind of comatose, but how long was it that he actually needed daily assistance? What was that time mm, period, do you think? Two weeks. It was only two weeks? Only two weeks. So before, before that, how it was just being, it was just constantly being on alert that he might need help? Well, he had seizures. Oh, right. He had I very small that. seizures. I mean, you unless you knew, you couldn't tell. Mm -hmm. I mean, he'd do little, like a bounce. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and of course he wouldn't remember them and they didn't last very long and he didn't fall down. Now, remember your dad was six foot four. Yeah. And you were <laughs> five foot two. Five foot two. <laughs> uh, but I picked him up. I mean, I, he didn't fall down, but I mean, as far as I helped him do everything, mm -hmm. um, in the, the last six months he got where he needed me 24 seven. Mm -hmm. He nope. could not be left alone. What did that look like? Like, give me an example of why you felt like he couldn't be left alone well uh he couldn't be left alone because he was losing function he was losing um muscular function mm -hmm. um he would have a seizure or he'd be in pain now brain his brain tumor was uh, it was a glioblastoma and i don't you know most people don't realize that it's one of the worst type of tumors you can have because his type was so fast growing Mm -hmm. He uh, had three brain surgeries. Three brain surgeries, yes. And they took and out a lot. Radiation and chemotherapy. And it was on his optic nerve, and but he never lost his sight, which is they guaranteed he would. So you can't believe everything. I mean... But, but they're unpredictable. Brain they're tumors very are, unpredictable. Any kind of brain cancer is unpredictable. And right. Some are slow growing and some are extremely very, fast. Which his was. He, mm -hmm. His replaced itself 10% in volume per day. That's insane. Mm -hmm. So, and after his last surgery, he said no more. Mm -hmm. 
Although, Do you think if Death with Dignity was around at that time that he would have done that? Probably, because he begged me to shoot him a couple mm-hmm. times. Which is another issue with caregiving is, and that people don't talk about, mm-hmm. is that your loved one may very well come to the point, especially if whatever they have is giving them pain, mm-hmm. beg you to kill them. Yep. Which is, I mean, I can't speak to that. I didn't have to go through it. Maybe you can. It was, it, it's very difficult. Very difficult to hear somebody begging for help, begging to kill them because the pain is so horrendous. Mm-hmm. And although we had hospice at that time, uh, well, after that episode, that was one of the last, that's when he went into the hospital for the last time. Mm-hmm. And um, he that's when we were living in Goldbar. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't get off the bed and he was in so much pain and he just said please just shoot me and he went to the hospital and they stabled him got him stable and got and him that's home. when you got hospice well we had hospice before we had hospice in Edmonds when he first got but uh, you have to go off to get the surgeries and stuff so well we hadn't gone off we'd just gone to the hospital he'd mm-hmm. come back on mm-hmm. um it, it was a very confusing time yeah um so he, uh, it was chaotic and f- confusing, but we had hospice. And, and uh, that's when they came in and brought the bed in. Mm-hmm. Now, this is when we started getting all the medical stuff. Because when he was at the hospital, I had all the drugs. I had everything. I'm the one that gave him his je- injections. In the hospital? Yeah. And wow, at home. that's different times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and at home, I had the nurses. He had intermuscular stuff. Yeah. Shots? He yeah. didn't have pills or liquid? No, he had sub-Q I mean, and wow. intermuscular. Medical has changed so much <laughs> in 30 years. <laughs> By the way, um, don't freak out, people. Hospice does not have caregivers give injections unless you're doing, like, diabetic stuff. So, yeah, that's well, not a thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's awful. Well, this was before they got totally involved. Mm-hmm. This is when... They were just there for counseling and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's before we had the bed, before we had all the medical equipment that we needed, mm-hmm. uh, before it got bad enough. Mm-hmm. Because when he was ambulatory, we didn't need all that. I would give him shots. Right. But he didn't need the specific care type of care. He could still take care of himself. Yeah. So then uh, in the hospital, the nurses taught me how to give him shots. And I, in the hospital, gave him shots. I took care of him in the hospital and gave the nurses a break. Which is insane. The <laughs> nurses should have given you a break. That's what the hospital's for. Oh, so, my goodness. And then, well, she was, they were preparing me to take him home because they right. knew I was going to be his only caregiver. Mm-hmm. So we took him home. And even when, after we got the nurse, we got hospice in fully fully and we got the bed and everything i was still his only caregiver i was the only one there 24 7 right and so yes i gave him shots i took care of him if Mm -hmm. he was in pain if he needed something i either it was either intermuscular or it was sub q Mm -hmm. i didn't give him ivs right or any of that i mean you know i just gave him shots Mm-hmm. I had all the drugs there at the house, mm-hmm. which is not unheard of at this time. Yeah. Uh, but then when he got really bad, we had to bring the hospital bed in. I still took care of him for a little about bit of time. 
But by then, I was so totally physically and mentally exhausted, I couldn't do it anymore. And he needed a catheter, and I couldn't do that. Right. I had to have, in the end, I had to pay nurses to come in 24-7. And nowadays, that wouldn't, that wouldn't really happen. You wouldn't have nurses specifically, although I have heard people ask for that. I don't even know of a service that offers nursing 24-7. It's generally caregiving, like um, CNAs or yeah. care aides yeah. that come in, um, caregivers. And the challenge with that is if you actually don't have a nurse there, caregivers often um, cannot give medication if they're from an agency. Ah, well. And they can the... hand person a medication, right. but they can't physically give it to them. Like if they're right. unconscious and you are keeping up with meds. Well, meds. when he when he got the bed and he got really bad and he basically I was lifting him. Mm-hmm. And uh because the last thing you want to do is pee the bed or pee in a commode, especially for men. So I was getting him up to go to the bathroom. We had a commode by the bed. Mm-hmm. But I was physically getting him up and lifting him and helping him. I don't know how you did that with <laughs> over a foot difference, but go on. And when it came to that point, um we, our insurance, he worked for Chevron, so our insurance was just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And I had 24, well, at first it started out eight hours shifts. Mm-hmm. And, but I couldn't leave, even though I knew there was, and all these nurses were critically trained. They were not. Yeah, they were actually RNs. They yes. were nurses. They were yes. not carried. So like and, they, and they had to be um, trained for critical yeah. care. They couldn't be just a regular RN that never did critical care. Mm-hmm. These people were all specific yeah, because of his progression. Mm-hmm. And I also demanded it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but <clears throat> it started out eight hours a day and, but I couldn't leave. I just, it, I just couldn't do it because nobody, I'd been doing it for two years. Mm-hmm. Nobody, as far as I was concerned, could do it, take care of him as well as I could. Yeah. Not even a professionally trained critical care nurse. They just didn't know how to take care of him. They didn't know him. They didn't live with him. So for me to leave, I tried to leave. Trust me, I knew I needed to leave. I was told I needed to leave for my own sanity. I'd walk out the door and I would get overwhelmed with guilt. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing that young caregivers, I think, have a problem with. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm older and I've done it a couple more times, not that I've wanted to, <laughs> but it's come to where I had to do it, uh, I've learned that I have to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. It, you have to. You have to listen to those people that say, you have to rest. You have to take care of yourself. I didn't do that. I was too young and too stupid to know that. And what happened as a result of that? I was exhausted and I basically blacked out everything mm-hmm. it was it was horrible i i just don't know how i did it myself yeah it was just too much i should have never done that but i wouldn't listen to anybody <laughs> because i knew better <laughs> which now i know i didn't know anything i can't imagine where i get that from <laughs> <laughs> but since then i've i've done it i've had to be a caregiver a couple more times with no support. I mean, I had my own family support, you and dad, you know, but for the most part, you know, I had his, your dad's mom. I had to be her caregiver. And, but after your dad passed, 
I was so physically and mentally exhausted. I swore I would never be able to do that again. It's so hard. Mm -hmm. Except the help when you offered it. Yeah. You know, uh, reach out and ask for help because it's crazy. Mm -hmm. And I only say that because I learned it the hard way. (laughs) Uh, But then when it came to taking care of his mother. Which was only four years later? uh, I don't even think it was four. Three years? Something like that. I don't remember. Like I say, there's a lot of time I've blocked out. And uh, you tend to do that for your own survival. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, I had you. Mm -hmm. I had you to take care of. I couldn't. And I was 10 at this point. Yeah. By the time Grandma was sick, I was 13. And I thought, oh, I can take care of her. So I moved her into my house. I don't remember that at all. (laughs) She wasn't there very long. In Marysville? Yeah. On the flats. We moved her into the house. Apparently, I blacked out something. <laughs> and not realizing how actually bad she was. Mm-hmm. And she had a congenital heart failure. She was hypertensive. She had uh, mental problems. Uh, like she would hallucinate. Of di- dementia? Or what well, do you, think? you know, I never really found out, but she had a lot of problems with her medications. Mm-hmm. Um, she ended up having a stroke, but I don't know if she had one before. She had a stroke in the nursing home. Okay. And that's another thing is to make sure a medical power of attorney is in place. Yes. Very pleased. Sorry, go, go back to, uh, you moved her in and I she had I moved her in and problems. she would uh, get up in the middle of the night and walk around and call for her brother Jack. I mean, obviously he'd been passed for years and years. And uh, she would call for him and think she was talking to him. So she was hallucinating. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where I was so exhausted again, uh, I just, I had to put her in a facility. I could not physically, mentally do it. Um, and it's where she needed to be. It's where she got the care she needed. And maybe you can talk a little bit here about how you made that decision. Because some people, most people really struggle with that initial um, decision to put a family member in a facility. Talk about overwhelming guilt. Mm -hmm. Again. Again. I I had so much guilt. I I thought, you know, this this woman, uh, she didn't have your dad until she was 40, so she was older anyway. Mm -hmm. So she was in her 70s when he passed. And only had one child. And only had one child. And no husband. Nope. And so she wasn't in a good way. And the reason I ended up with her is because she was living in the Everett High Rise. And that was like independent living? Independent living, yes. In uh, for uh, what's it called? Everett Housing Authority. Right. She was living in the big high rise there in an apartment. And they remember that part. They had pool cords everywhere. But, you know, I mean, if you're mentally out of it, you. You're not going to pull pull the cord, yeah. But they called me one night saying they found her walking down the stairs the hallway naked great so i went and she had fallen and hit her head on her bedstand. she never pulled the cords or anything she was pretty out of it mm-hmm. um physically and mentally you know mm-hmm. and so that's when i put my hero cape on and said you're gonna come home and live with me i'll take care of you which was the stupidest thing i could have done not not because I didn't love her, but because of her needs. Mm-hmm. I 
I was still young. Yeah. You're you're only 37 at this yeah. point. Yeah. 38? 38, yeah. Um, I was young. And to me, I mean, I had... I'd faced your father's death, but I was still immortal, you know. <laughs> I was Wonder Woman. I could take care of anybody, which is totally wrong. I mean, you, people tried to tell me, but I wouldn't listen. So you have to listen to people. <laughs> Sometimes they know best. Uh, but anyway, uh, I had her at the house for a while, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't be up all night watching her. Um, it was just too hard. Mm-hmm. And so I did finally put her in a, a nursing home. We found one that she actually liked. And uh, she was happy there for a while. But then, uh, and I had her medical power of attorney. I had everything, all her power of attorney for everything. Uh, so I went in there one night. I went in there all the time to visit her. And, and she was very, she was raised in a depression, so she hoarded things like candy and 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 you tend to revert. Yes, when you start having you know declining cognitively when you're older, you tend to revert to a younger age. So yes, it's reasonable that she would have been doing those behaviors again. Right, and she thought everybody was stealing from her. People were in the room. She was still hallucinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went in, and she was laying there, and. I looked, took one look at her and obviously knew she had had a stroke. Mm-hmm. And this was another horrific, hard part, heartbreaking part for me. I had to let her go because we had talked. And that's the one thing, talking to the person you're giving caregiver to. I talked to Dick, your dad. I talked to your grandma before they were not capable of having a Informed conversation. Informed conversation. Yeah. About what they wanted, what their wishes were, and how they wanted to be treated, and how they wanted to die. Mm-hmm. And as a side note now, we have a booklet called Five Wishes. Yep. Which makes that conversation a little easier. Kind of walks you through the different steps to have conversations with your family. Yep. Well, we started early having that conversation because we didn't have a choice. When your dad got sick, we were very open with you. Mm-hmm. And very open with each other. Talked about cancer, the nasty C word. We talked about death. And we talked about to you that your your dad's going to die. Yeah. You know, it's a very hard conversation, but you have to have it. And that's another thing that scared our friends. Mm. They didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. They didn't want to talk about the fact he was dying. He was going to get better, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And he didn't want to tell anybody because he didn't want a bunch of sympathy. Mm-hmm. His friends would come in. They'd say, "How you doing?" He'd say, "I'm dying." He was very blunt People about it. People don't know how to react. To no, that. they don't. <laughs> uh-huh. So we were we did have open conversations, which I know that most people do not. They're afraid to talk about it. They're afraid to talk to the person that's dying because they don't want to offend them or upset them or hurt their feelings. But it's very important to talk about. Um, and in this example, it's important because you're making medical decisions for them and you need to know what their wishes were. Right. So talking to Vivian, I knew what she wanted. And, and, uh, when I realized she'd had a stroke and the nurses came in while I was there to give him, give her medication. And that was a big, to prolong her life. To prolong her life. Yes. And, 
I said, no. Well, my God, you would have thought a bomb hit the place. <laughs> so they went, and they knew I had power of attorney. So they and said... she was not on hospice, right? No, she was not on right. hospice. Um, she was in a facility, but she was not on hospice. She probably should have been. If I would have thought about it, I would have had her on hospice. But, but she didn't have... She wouldn't have had she didn't that diagnosis. Have a terminal diagnosis until she had the stroke. Really? Well, when she had the stroke, she was pretty much gone. she was gone. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because she wasn't doing well before then, uh, and I went in and I the nurses say we have to, you know, I said no, you don't, and they tried to argue with me, and I said, has the doctor seen her? And they said, no, but we have to give her this medication. I said, no, you don't. I'm stopping you. Get the doctor on the phone. Yeah. I mean, that's when you got to stand up for the patient's rights. If Even if you're a caregiver. You have to be an advocate. You do, because I knew what she wanted. They did not know what she was wanted. They're there to pay to do a job, to keep her alive and make her comfortable or whatever. But she wasn't. And they weren't doing it to be malicious. No, to no, be no, clear. no. They were doing it because that was their job. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's a... a you have to be as a caregiver and somebody with that type of power of attorney, you have to be aware mm -hmm. of what's going on. If you don't, especially if you don't have hospice involved. Yeah. Uh, but I was there all the time. And your power of attorney specifically has to state health care. Yes. It has to state health care. Did, it did specifically. We yeah. made sure of that. Uh, in fact, we went to an attorney and we got the, the durable power of attorney, the medical power of attorney, all the powers of attorney that I could have. Yeah. Um, so they couldn't turn me down. I, it was like me. It was like her speaking, mm -hmm. you know. Exactly. So the doctor got on the phone and I asked one question that he couldn't say yes to. I said, will this give her quality of life? Yeah. Which she was adamant about. And he said... Well, it'll, I said, no, will this give her quality of life? And he said, no. I said, fine. That evening she passed. Yeah. Uh, because it was important to her and it made it important to me. Not and she that probably I, would have passed pretty quickly anyway, but why sustain right. her if that's not what she wanted? Exactly. And that's, you know, and they, at that point she had a stroke. She was glassy eyed. She couldn't look at you. She couldn't respond at all. Mm-hmm. You know, there was absolutely no response, no life there. Yeah. And that's when I knew it was time. And then I had to go take care of my mother. Because you weren't there for, I mean, you were there when Grandpa died, but you didn't have to be a caregiver for him. Right, right. Because that was sudden. Yes. Come, kind, kind of. Kind of, sort of, yeah. I mean, he, he was still able to take care of himself and had a sudden event. Yes, that well, took all, his life, but yes. he didn't need caregiving up until that point. No, right. no. He although we did have a hospital bed for him, mm -hmm. and uh, he was he got in it. In fact, that night when he passed, the night before he rallied, and was doing great, and uh, that's I knew, in my heart, I knew it was time. And he went in. He brushed his teeth. Went to bed and had a massive heart attack. And it was pretty much instant. Yeah. So, and I was by his side for that. But no, I was not his caregiver. 
But my mom, your grandma, yeah, called me. Other grandma. My other grandma called me and said, I don't feel good. I was down there that day, and she lived in Yuma. Yeah. And uh, we were up in Washington still, and we, she was in Arizona. Right. And after that, I was there for six months. Yeah. Taking care of my mother. I closed my business. Yeah. I mean, I had to go. It was my mom. And that was hard. Mm. That was very difficult. And you had, at that time, three other siblings. I did have three siblings. But it turned out they're boys. (laughs) Not that all men are (laughs) the same. But men do have the hardest time, especially with their mothers. And we found that with, you know, as anecdotal evidence with our other friends as well. Right. And their mothers getting sick. Yeah. Boys have tend to turn a blind eye when it comes to their mother. It's not happening. Because the same thing happened to my neighbor lady that I took care of. Another yeah. one. Uh, but I'm just going to start calling you Florence. <laughs> Don't please. Florence Nightingale. It's not something I want to do. <laughs> Uh, it's just something, uh, I don't know, it's in me that to take care of people, but. And grandma, this yeah. grandma was, uh, different because she was very cognitively aware and stubborn because that runs in the family. She was very <laughs> stubborn. Oh my goodness. So that was a different type of caregiving situation where yeah. she needs help. And well, the thing about your grandmother not only was she stubborn, it's almost like she didn't want to live. Mm. She, I went down there. She had open heart surgery. She had a um, aortic aneurysm. And she also had abdominal aneurysm. They fixed the aortic aneurysm. But there was things I realized later that was too late. Otherwise, she probably wouldn't have had the surgery to begin with. Mm -hmm. She would have just gone on and passed, except for the fact it's so painful, evidently. Yes. So, anyway, I didn't know that. I mean, I found out. The doctors told me and stuff. But she was always like a little banny rooster. Nothing got her down. nothing, Nothing stopped her if she wanted something. But once she had her surgery... She was still stubborn, like a little banny hen, but she didn't want to do any of the physical therapy. She wanted somebody to take care of her. Which is so out of character. Yeah, it was just the opposite of the way she was. Mm -hmm. She was always the caregiver. She took care of my grandma. Yeah. But um, she, yeah, she turned into a whole different, she turned into a child. I had to become the parent. I was not prepared to do that, but I did it. And I didn't want to. And she, at the same time, was turning into a child, but not cognitively. She no. was still decisional. Oh, sure. So she decided what she, we talked about, we had hospice come in with her too. They came in, supplied, they were awesome. They came in, supplied everything. They got her medication. They got her um, an oxygen box thing, mm-hmm. you know. Concentrator. Concentrator. They got her a bed. Uh, they got her a chair for the shower. They got her a commode. They got her everything she needed medically to take care of that. Um, and uh, she was on painkillers. Don't ever have old people die in Yuma, please. <laughs> That's kind of where old people go to well, die. Well, <laughs> you know, I had a hard time with the hospital. 
down the there. actual hospital the actual hospital uh, i got a chance to come home for a second <laughs> and while i was actually while i was landing and by the time i got home i had gotten a phone call from the nurse that came in to visit saying she had pneumonia so i had to go back the next day <laughs> so we put her in the hospital and you have to be specific with these nurses and doctors did not like me trust me um because she said she was in pain uh, and they you know they ask you this question which is to me is so ludicrous what's your pain level from one to ten mm-hmm. she'd always say ten always they never asked her if she was in pain they said what's your pain level so they dosed her up. I went in there just before I took her home. Is Grandma a drug seeker? No, <laughs> she wasn't. Uh, and I said, I told, I pulled the nurse in here, in, and I said, I want you to listen to me, and I want you to listen to her answer, and then I want you to change your question to her. I said, Mom, are you in pain? No. What's your pain level? Ten. What do you do with that? Yeah. She wasn't in pain. But she was so programmed then to say 10. Mm. Yeah. So, anyway, I went in the last time when I was taking her home. Uh, I went in and she was basically laying there, comatose, glassy-eyed, no response. Now, remember, this woman had heart open-heart surgery. Right. We did a thing on her chest where you do you put your knuckles down on the chest sternum to get a reaction yeah i got no reaction i found out why they put her on morphine patches she weighed 90 pounds <laughs> well sounds like they just overdosed they overdosed her they, they snowed her yes they snowed her and then i got in the doctor's face and, and had, again, morphine, morphine. Just morphine. side note, morphine is not bad. No, morphine no, no. does not kill you. No. Well, it can, but it's unlikely. It yeah. takes a lot to kill you. But if you're sensitive to the medication or if you haven't had it before and you don't weigh very much, there are scenarios where and you can she be snowed very quickly. And she wasn't eating. And you just have to take a day to recover from that. Right. So, she so was, to clarify. She, yes. So I had them take off, her off all her medication. Except for the one, all the painkillers, not the meds, but all the painkillers. Except for the one that she took for her pain, mm -hmm. which she had been taking. And that was Percocet. Mm. Well, they wrote on her chart, daughter said take her off all medication, period. They didn't bother to say leave her on the one. Oh. So my mother calls me, yelling at me. Melody, almost crying. Saying, they said you said I couldn't have any pain medication. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I went to the hospital. And this doctor must have been, looked seven foot to me. And got in his face. He didn't like it. But they treat all old people down there the same. I'm sorry, but they do. So I took her home. I said, I gave her three questions. And her friend of hers was with me. I said, Mom... These are your choices. 
you stay here and die. Because I was being very blunt at that time. I was tired. Yeah. I was really tired. You're going to stay here and die. You're going to go in a nursing home and die. Or you're going to go home and die. Which will it be? And this is 2000. Yes. This happened. Yeah. She said, I want to go home. I said, fine. Pack her up. We're going in. I took her home. She wouldn't do her exercises. She didn't want to get out of bed. She didn't want to eat because she was on a feeding tube. That's a whole nother... Oh, that's a whole nother story. But anyway, being your caregiver and turning into her mother, I had to take care of her. Yeah, you had to change in roles. Yes. And that's another thing about... Same with when you were taking care of my father, is you're not the spouse anymore. You're the caregiver. That's a very different role. When you have the ability, and not everyone does, unfortunately, but when you have the ability to hire in caregiving, you can go back mainly... To being the spouse and grieving, anticipatory grieving. You don't have to be everything all at once. Yes. And the, and the thing when your dad, this is the thing I truly appreciate. Uh, I think about it once in a while uh, and knowing the, the field that you're in. And I shake my head sometimes and wonder why the hell you would do it. But <laughs> Maybe because I, <laughs> I appreciate you for it, but because I know how important it is. But um, the one thing I truly appreciated is when your father was dying and he was having a bad day. And, and I had a, one of the counselors came out for one of their normal visits mm-hmm. and we sat outside and he allowed me to be angry. That's there's so much guilt involved because you're angry you wish they would just die and get it over with because you're so freaking exhausted. Yeah. You know, and you feel guilty. For wishing they would For go. wishing that they would just die. <laughs> yeah. All these emotions are hard to deal with when you're 34, 35, 36. They're not hard to deal with when you're 60 and 70. They are. Uh, but you still, you feel guilty. And having that opportunity to talk to somebody about it and have them tell you, it's okay to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Just normalize your feelings. Yeah. yeah. It was amazing. It made me feel so much better that it was okay if I was angry at him. It was okay I was that I just wanted him to die and get it over with because I was so tired. But And you didn't want him to suffer either. And I didn't want him to suffer. And, and I knew he was suffering. And that's a hard part too. Mm-hmm. When you know they're suffering and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, yeah. So thank God for hospice. <laughs> thank you for doing what you do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. <clears throat> I think I'm done ranting now. Are you sure? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you bring up all this stuff and I relive it, and it's I just know. like <laughs> having a trauma flashback. <laughs> yes, and wishing people didn't have to go through it, and they would allow people to help them. Yeah, you mean the patient? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And talking. To the patient as a caregiver or a, a, a sibling or a, a child or, or a relative to have some kind of open dialogue is so important mm-hmm. to know and what they want. You can't ignore it. It's not going to go away. <laughs> yeah. Because we're all going to die. We're all going to die. <laughs> I.e. this podcast name. <laughs> uh, but that wasn't the only times you've been a caregiver. You were alluding to... Another time you got sucked into caregiving, and it wasn't even your family member. Oh, my neighbor, Bobby. She was so sweet. I just loved her. I adopted her 
as my mother. <laughs> she adopted you. <laughs> but I went over every day. Yes, I took care of Bobby. And she had caregivers. And she had kids. She had caregivers. She, well, she had kids and caregivers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that weren't there. Well, the kids. Yeah. yeah. The kids. Not, were, not the caregivers. The not caregivers the caregivers. Were there. The, the kids. The caregivers were paid. Yeah. <laughs> they, were there. they were there. Well, they didn't come in until the end either. I was doing all the caregiving. I went right. over every day. Yeah. It didn't, you know? wasn't very long. Right. She had full time. Uh, but I would call her daughters. You know, I mean, she fell and broke her hip. She fell and broke her arm, you know. And that uh, was long before she needed right. help, but she was living alone. Yep. Well, her, when her she husband, broke her husband, her husband, her, her husband had see, dementia, right? Yes, and he had diabetes. Yeah. So that's another dimension of that age because I talked to Bobby. This is one thing I learned that it's so important to talk to your family. <laughs> and she wouldn't because she, that age, she didn't want to bother her children. She didn't want to worry her children. But her husband fell all the time and couldn't get back up. She physically took care of him, and he was a big man. Yeah. I'd go over several times and help him up. Yeah. But he actually fell on her, and that's how he broke. she broke his hip, her hip. Mm. And she ended up, this is when her kids found out the dynamic of what was going on. Because it usually takes something happening yes. like that before anybody knows. Yes. Because unless you're living communally, which 99% of people are not, although that's probably happening more often now due to economics, but um, people that are the greatest generation and the baby boomer generation uh, raised independent Gen Xers like myself, and everyone's separate. And so you don't know what that dynamic is because you only see each other at the holidays or whatnot. whatnot. Well, her big thing is that she didn't want to bother her children. Well, I was going to say they hide it. Yeah. Right? They're really good at hiding it. Oh, yeah. It. She was very stoic. And she took care of Ray, and she should not have been taking care of him alone. Mm -hmm. uh, because he was... And they didn't find out how bad he was... And what she had been doing for him until, until she, she broke her hip. Her hip. Uh, and she had to go in the hospital, of course, and then she went into rehab. And in that time, someone and, had to take care of Ray. Yes. Then her son and her daughters came. And said, oh, my oh, God. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had no idea. No mm -hmm. idea. And then finally, while Bobby was in rehab, they tried to put him in with her. And he was so disruptive, they had to move him to a, an Alzheimer's unit that mm -hmm. was specifically designed to take care of him and mm -hmm. his needs. Yeah. Um, because he was getting worse and worse and losing function and losing mental capacity. And there was a lot of times he didn't know where he was. Even when I was over there, you know, he wouldn't know who she was sometimes. Yeah, even when he was still home. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so they put him in a facility, and uh, it was a much better place for him. And then Bobby got better and came home. Ray didn't never came home. Which is uh, better for yes. both of them, honestly. He, he passed not too long after that. Uh, but Bobby was home alone, and I was right next door and adored her, and uh, I took care of her. I went over every day. I vacuumed, I cleaned, I did things for her, I talked to her, which was the most important thing. 
because obviously she was not talking to her children. And I point blank told her, you need to talk to your children. And she says, I don't want to bother them. I don't want them to worry. So as a child out there, please let your parents know if you can at all and have any kind of relationship with them. Obviously, circumstances being what they are. I understand if your parent was abusive and terrible, you'd <laughs> let them die on their own. But if you can or have any kind of relationship in love with your parent, please, please, please let them know and check in on them frequently when, they, when they're living alone, when they're getting older. Check in with them because it might be this exact thing. They are just not wanting to burden you. Well, I actually tricked her. I remember. <laughs> uh, Bobby and I could talk openly. That's one thing. I wasn't her daughter, so uh, I wasn't a relative. So she wasn't burdening me. She wasn't worrying me. Of course, I worried about her, but it wasn't like her children. And her daughter came over, and I told her I wanted her to be quiet and sit in the kitchen and listen. Which had a wall between the kitchen yes, and the living she room. Yes, she did not know her daughter was there. And I went in and sat down and talked to Bobby like we always talked. We talked about death. We talked about how she felt. We talked about her kids. We talked about you need to talk to your kids. We talked about how she didn't want to talk to her kids, how she didn't want to burden them. Well, her daughter was in the kitchen listening to all this, and she needed to hear it. Mm -hmm. She really did need to hear it. And she just pulled her bootstraps up and called her brother and her sister and said, get your butt over here. Yeah. Because they had no idea. And how would they? Even though I told them. <laughs> right. They didn't hear it from their mother. So according to Bobby, she was fine. Right. I'm fine. Melody's here to take care of me, so you don't have to worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they had no idea what that caregiving looked like. Exactly. I mean, even when she was in a nursing home, when she finally went to the nursing home, she had them call me. Because I was the only one that knew how to fix her pillows right so she could sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know what? I went down and took care of her pillows. <laughs> she wouldn't did. let the nurses take care of her. And I came down. She said, you guys go away. Belle, you do it. Now, as a side note, uh, as a social worker. <laughs> That's wrong. <laughs> I would advise you not to do that. You have to. Sometimes you have to give a little tough love. And that is so difficult i i can only imagine how difficult that would be to say no but if you don't you create a cycle of dependence that the paid people to do this are not able to because they know that you'll do it well the thing when i was there and i knew that i really did know that i i told myself i have to stop doing this because she's too dependent on me by that instant right there i knew she was too dependent on me. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't be there 24-7. Exactly. She was in a facility where people took care of her. And so, were paying to be right. taken care of her. So when I went in, this is what I did. When I went in, the nurse was there. And I said, Bobby, the nurse is here. I'm going to show her how I do your pillows so she can do them for you. Good. And that was okay. As long as she knew I told that nurse how to do her pillows... She was okay. And I called her kids. Get your butt in there. Yeah. And they did. Finally. You know, and I was released from that, although it broke my heart because I love her dearly. 
it was very sad. And then kind of, I was kind of jealous, I guess, when her kids came in because I had been taking care of her, you know, and I had adopted her as my mom and I loved her. And this was after your mom passed. Yeah. And of course, they didn't know how to take care of her as good as I did, although they were her kids. <laughs> but they also hadn't had the caregiving experience years and years that right. had. Which sometimes I wish I hadn't. It's a burden. It's a blessing that I was able to do that. It's so much of a burden and you have to reach out for peop to people. Yeah. It's so important, especially family members. Talk to your family members, even if it's a hard subject. And one of the other things we were talking about this morning was um, it's difficult to watch people, especially when they live alone, in situations where you can just see the disaster waiting to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't just randomly detain people, even if they're having a mental breakdown or dementia which I've seen a few times in the last few years, it ultimately ends up coming to a crisis before anything can be done, which is awful and morally distressing. And that's when you as the bystander need to get as much support as you can because there's really nothing you can do. If they are going to ignore their symptoms or refuse help and they're even when they're not decisional, if they're not gravely endangering themselves, they cannot be detained. Right. And even if you do detain them, is it really their best quality of life if they want to be home? And that answer sometimes sucks because if putting them in a facility makes you feel better, it doesn't mean it's a better quality of life for them. No, no. And that's a hard pill to swallow. It is. Well, Bobby was home when she died. Yeah. No, I'm okay. talking about someone else. Oh, yeah. The friend of ours. <laughs> well, that one, too. There's a couple. <laughs> yeah. Well, a friend of ours has... his. The mom is in total denial. And she's getting dementia or has dementia, some yeah. form of dementia. Yeah. And uh, she's she will never admit it. And she gets angry and mean and falls. And this person has to stay there 24-7. I empathize with him totally. Um, luckily he is going to groups and talks and seminars about her condition so he can understand it better, but he has no other family members to lean on mm -hmm. and it's very difficult for him. And I know it is, and I feel so bad for him. Um, but you know, if she's not going to allow somebody to come in, there's nothing he can do. Right. And you know, he's going to have to make a decision at some point. Is he going to continue to stay there? You know, because he doesn't actually live with her, right? Yes, he does. In the house? Yeah. He lives there. He does now, yeah. But he didn't before. No. So he's going to have to make the decision. Does he stay there and continue to be her 24-hour caregiver? Or does he back away a little bit? And let the crisis happen, which then it's, you're filled with guilt because you let it happen. Right. But ultimately, it's it's their choice, but you don't feel like that. You're going to feel like it's your fault. You weren't he's, there to protect her. He's like I am mm -hmm. when your dad died. He is so mentally and physically exhausted. He's suffering physically and, and medically. Except for she's got a lot more life to live. Yes. She doesn't have a terminal diagnosis. Right. 
So this, I mean, unfortunately. He may have a terminal diagnosis before she does. Yeah. I mean, people can live 10, 15 years with dementia. It is a terrible disease and it can take a very long time. Oftentimes what gets people is a fall and then subsequent to the fall, something else happens. But if they don't. Yeah. He, it could be years. It could yeah. be decades. Trust me, I've told him to call you more than once. <laughs> <sighs> well, we've been talking for almost an hour, if you can believe oh, it. Oh, man. I know. You must have needed a therapy. I must have needed a therapy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another podcast. Yeah. Dealing, dealing with your therapist that's died on you. Oh, we won't even go there. <laughs> Still mad at him. I know. So, <laughs> any final thoughts on caregiving or advice for caregivers? Please talk to your family member. Please don't reject help that's offered. Please get a financial Reach medical out. power of attorney. Yes, please do that. That's the most important thing. Um, and if you don't know all the ramifications of what happens after the person dies, you need to know that too. Like and you birth can, certificates and how many, oh my God, there's so much you need to know. Yeah. That's a whole other topic. Yeah. Well, we should do a post-death. That's a great idea. You and I maybe let down the road can do a post-death advice of what people should be aware of, what things you've learned. I have a post-death checklist that I give my patients, but um, you've been through it it's, several times. It's unreal what yeah. you need to know and what you need to have. Yeah. So, um, uh, But please yeah. talk, 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 talk. Even if they don't want to listen, talk is so important. So important. Yeah. I'm glad we've talked enough that at length. <laughs> You're tired of listening to me. <laughs> no, no, not ever. Am I ever tired of listening to you? But I know what your wishes are. Yes. If you were to become incapacitated tomorrow, I know exactly what your wishes are. I've made them perfectly clear. Yeah. Did you do your power of attorney yet? Uh, no. Guilty. Guilty. Have, do I have mine done? Yes. For years. Smarty pants. <laughs> All right. Well, she's such a know-it-all, people. Where did I get that from? <laughs> Thank you for coming on and talking to me about caregiving and your experience. Well, you're welcome. It's invaluable, and I will have you on again to talk about lots of other things. Lots of other things. Yeah. Someday we're all going to be dead. <laughs> well, if anybody out there has any questions or comments, I would love to hear them. Please email me at contact at someday we'll all be dead. That's not right. <laughs> Don't email that. Email contact at wellallbedeadpodcast.com and the website wellallbedeadpodcast.com and check out the Facebook page. Someday we'll all be dead. And we look forward to hearing any of that. Um, yeah. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Do your powers of attorney. Because we're not going to avoid this. Someday we'll all be dead.